The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. You may be seated as you turn in your copies of God's Word to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. I'm not going to read all of the chapter to begin with, but I will uh, read all of the chapter uh, uh, by the time we are through to make some comments to bring our focus together. Look at chapter 20, and I want you to read with me verses 1 through 6. It gives us two visions, a vision of the, of the heavens and the earth in light of the triumphant ascended Savior. Look at the first vision that's articulated in verses 1 through 3. And then I saw, there's your visionary statement, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it. And sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now the vision shifts. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ For a thousand years, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God abides forever. May it be preached for you. So folks, if I can back up a little bit. So we have been studying, if I should die before I wake, what happens? Well, as I've said, your mother and your grandmother who probably taught you that prayer were right. Your body will go to a grave. Your soul will go to be with the Lord. 
I pray the Lord my soul to take. And when your soul goes to be with the Lord, you will be in what is identified in the Bible as the immediate heaven. Now, some people call it the intermediate state. And I think I understand why theologians call it that, because it's not the final state. Thus, it's an intermediate state. But I prefer to call it the immediate heaven. Just to communicate, this is not a holding place and certainly don't want to get it confused with the superstitious and um, and manipulating doctrine of purgatory uh, that uh, has no foundation at all in Scripture. But this is an, uh, the immediate heaven where the soul is perfected and there is a recognizable communication among those that are there with the Lord and with one another. But it is not the final state. And uh, it is not the final state uh, and that we need to remember that. And so the body is in the grave and the soul is with the Lord in what is also called in the heavens this immediate heaven Abraham's bosom. It's also called paradise. And so it is in that state that we find ourselves uh, with the Lord, knowing the joy of his presence. The unbeliever, of course, is in torment, not the final torment of Gehenna, but the immediate torment of the abyss or Hades or the place of torment. Now, what will happen before Jesus comes and we'll be ushered into our final state? Our ultimate state, the new heavens and the new earth. Well, that can't happen until Jesus returns. So we studied the text that tells us the signs of the close of the age, the signs of his coming, and the signs of his presence as he brings all things to consummation. So he comes, and then comes the judgment seat, which we have studied, which we will read about again in just a moment. And then comes the judgment seat. And then go the unbelievers who have rejected the truth of God and have rejected the glory and majesty of God as they have embraced sin in life and rebellion against God come under the righteous judgment of God and are cast into eternal condemnation. You know, it's really interesting to me in light of this Sunday's morning sermon when I talked about how God's wrath now is revealed by God saying, basically, uh, you don't want my will, then you may have your will. Thy will be done as he gives us over uh, to our sins in re- if we stand in rebellion in suppressing the truth and futile thinking and in the emptiness of idolatry. He gives us over to it. But it's interesting, the the ultimate display of his wrath, the eternal wrath, isn't stated, God gives them over. It says God sins. God throws. God hurls them into the lake of fire with Satan, death, hell, and the grave. God's wrath now says, you don't want me? Then I'll give you the consequences. And people hungrily embrace it. In that day, they will not hungrily embrace Gehenna. There will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be a temper tantrum of hatred against God 
on that day. And God doesn't just usher them in as a gentleman to what you always wanted. You don't want me, so you get isolation and hell and depart from me. No, it is given as it will be required, which is God's sovereign power sending, hurling, and throwing injustice under eternal condemnation. And that's what will take place at the judgment after the second coming. Well, what happens before the second coming? So last week we looked at what the book of Revelation says that throughout history, Daniel supports this, Zechariah supports this in the book of Revelation. That there is a land of, there is the beast of the sea that rises up. And this beast has all in the book of Revelation, the reflections of the beast that are uh, in the visions of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, that Daniel interpreted and you see the rising of tyrannical governments throughout the age as doing the work of Satan as they would authoritarian they would with they would seek authority and tyrancy over humanity by taking the place of God when in reality they're doing the bidding of Satan and so then, and to further that, is the beast of the land, or the beast of the earth, which is apostate government. You'll notice that it does the work of the serpent, but the two horns, it has the appearance of a lamb. It is the wolves in sheep clothing, the apostate church, that does the work in concert with the uh, uh, tyrannical beast of the sea and the, and the uh, tyrannical governments of the day with their messianic enterprise. We will be your savior. And, you know, you're right in the midst of that right now, aren't you? As you see all of the social and political um, instruments that are being used to create division and polarization and chaos and violence in the streets uh, piggybacking on valid issues such as partiality, discrimination, racism, but bringing not solutions but things that exacerbate those uh, those issues. Why? Because the answer, the the goal by those who use such instruments in this world is not to bring a solution or reconciliation, but to create more polarization. And so, with the offer, if you've been oppressed, then we will. We will, we promise to make you the new oppressors. You see, it's really racism reversed is all it is. And uh, there is no joy, there is no fulfillment, no solution, because there's no solution is wanted. The solution is out of chaos and despair. You turn everything over to someone who will promise to bring order, and that's tyrannical government. And that's what is being offered in those moments. So that's, that's been with us throughout the ages. It started with Babel. And it has continued since then. An apostate people uh, supporting the movement of the beast of the sea. And it was succeeded. You've got the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks and then the uh, Romans. And then throughout the ages, there have been all of these pretenders, as the government would say, we want to be your God. Now, let me be very clear to you. I am not anti-government. I think government is a gift from God. It is a gift not of redeeming grace. That's the church brings that mission and message. It has the gift of common grace to restrain sin and honor 
that which is righteousness. And that's what we need in a fallen world. So government post-fall is given for that purpose. But like so many things, that purpose is then perverted by the sinfulness of men who would then take it as an opportunity to seize power over people. And instead of a government protecting God-given rights, it becomes a government that assumes the place of God to give and take away rights. So that's what we see throughout history, and it will come to a crescendo at the end right before Christ comes. Now, what else will happen? If I can give you a little bit more background here, a little bit more context, and whet your appetite to go and load my last series on the book of Revelation that I did about six or seven years ago, um, is the book of Revelation is a book, it's like a parchment that would unfold. It unfolds after giving you the message to the seven churches and after bringing to us the dilemma, who is worthy to open the seals, the seven seals, the book then unfolds, it unrolls with seven seals. And then a seventh seal is unfolded with seven trumpets. And then a seventh trumpet is unfolded with seven bowls of wrath. And you begin to follow this pathway. But in it, the book has two parts. It's got from the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the history of humanity until his coming from chapters 12 to 19, which has just been ended. And then in chapter 20, through the end of the book, you recycle. You go back and start. That's what the, it is continually recycling itself in the book of Revelation. And so now chapters 20 through the chapter 22 is a recycling of chapters 12 through 19. And so chapter 20 brings you back to the triumphant incarnate ministry of Christ, his crucifixion and his resurrection and what happens. And chapter 20 opens with two visions for you. In light of the ascended victorious Christ, there is a vision of the implications of that on the earth, then a vision of the implications of that in the heavens. The first one, the vision of the implications of Christos Victor, Christ the Victor in heaven, is given to you in the opening verses of what are the implications on the earth. Now, you need to understand one more piece of background is that as the Old Testament unfolds, there is a promise, but there is no experience of it except periodically a taste of it. Harry, what do you mean? When God gave the promise of the covenant of grace to Abraham, this covenant of grace that would unfold from Abraham to the covenant with uh, Moses, uh, to the covenant with David, to the covenant with the prophets, and then fulfilled in the new covenant with Christ. This unfolding covenant of grace from old to new is like a stair step that keeps building till you get to the fulfillment in Christ. This glorious covenant of grace with its unfolding installments and that what you now see is this magnificent statement to the glory of God. And in those, uh, in those promises are constant promises that when God sends the Messiah, when God's redeeming work comes to victory, it will be 
from the rising to the setting of the sun. It will be to all the nations. To Abraham, he said, in you, I will give you a seed and I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to all the nations. Psalm 2 says, why are the nations in an uproar? The Lord King will be the ruler over all the nations. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. Psalm 72 declares that the rule of God's grace, covenant of grace, will be from the rising to the setting of the sun. As far as the waters cover the sea, so will this work of grace be established. And you'll find little taste of it. In the Old Testament, as incursions into the Gentiles take place. But by and large, in the Old Testament, you see God working to redeem a recalcitrant people within one nation, a theocracy. And that is Israel, God's covenanted people. I don't want to unsell anyone's books, but there has only been one covenanted nation with God, and that's Israel. America is not a covenanted nation. America is a providentially blessed nation. It takes absolute idiocy to deny the hand of God has been gracious even in our imperfections. I believe the hand of God has been providentially set upon us not only by God's sovereignty, but also out of God honoring his promises. What does he tell God's covenant people? I will bless the nations that bless you, and I will make you a blessing to the nations. We have resided in a nation that was highly impacted by the Reformation and by the Great Awakening, and with that salt and light, it affected how we saw government and what was the purpose of government under God. We are not a theocracy as as Israel was, but we are constitutionally, our three major documents, the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, the Declaration declaring our freedom, the Constitution that ordered our freedom, and the Bill of Rights with its existence helps us maintain and mature our freedoms. Those, all three of them, reference the, the, um, the fact that they exist under the authority of God. But we don't have a covenanted relationship with God. That is a theocracy, and there's only been one, and that is the nation of Israel. Therefore, you see God constantly working. And the Bible says, and the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Now, that's not because Satan is more powerful than God. It was by a sovereign decision of how God's going to work. I've got a family. I've got a seed that I've promised. And I'm going to have a woman, a bride, a covenanted people through which that seed is going to come. And I will get that woman through a Gentile. His name is Abraham. And he will be converted, circumcised, and the father of my covenanted people, Israel. And then when he does that, he so establishes the man and his family, then the family is established as a nation. 
and matured and multiplied and mobilized under bondage in Egypt. Then set free through the wilderness to come to the promised land. And as it occupies the promised land, he then gives them a king because they rebelled against the theocracy. We want a king like the other nations. That was their desire. At the time, they were ruled by judges, and their king was God himself. They were a theocracy. And God gives them what they want, but that is in God's sovereign plan, because as he gives them what he want, they want, he sets up the tribe of the scepter, Judah, and the family of Jesse, and the order of David, through which he will bring the king of kings, and the prophet, and the priest, the Messiah. And God is doing all of that work and has sovereignly so ordained it. That's why Paul will say that the nations in times past were dwelling in ignorance while the promises had been given to God's covenant people. And so God worked within them. And as he is working, now they're not totally ignorant. Hopefully you've been listening to the last three sermons. They've got the witness of creation. But they are ignorant of the promises of redemption in Christ. Because those promises were given to the people of Israel. And God was working within the nations. And he allowed, gave over the sins of the nations under Satan the prince and the power of the air, as he was ruling over the nations under God's sovereign appointment, as God is accomplishing his purposes. Then comes Jesus, who is king of kings and lord of lords, who defeats all of his enemies, who wins the victory. And when he ascends into heaven, he leads captive a host of captives, his redeemed, his elect from every tribe and nation. At the cross, he didn't make the elect savable. He saved them. I lose not one. Who shall lay a charge against God's elect? God has justified. Not make us justifiable if we do something, but has justified us and now brings us by faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so now God's purpose is to fulfill the promise to Abraham and the psalmist to go and make disciples what? Come on, folks. You know, I just want to tell y'all something. How many of y'all come to the 11 o'clock? Don't, I'm not going to get on to you. You can raise your hand. Do you come to the 11 o'clock? Yeah. How many of y'all come to the 930? I'm going to tell you, the 8 o'clock puts all of y'all to shame. I said to Bruce, I said, Bruce, what is happening to the 8 o'clock service? He says, I don't know. All I know is all the young people come to the 9, 30, and 11 for Sunday school. It's our older people. They must really love Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's all I can say. Not trying to get any competition started at all. 
But here is this glorious truth. Come on and participate and see it. That he, we make disciples, what? Of all the nations. And what is Christ done in his initial defeat of Satan? Remember, he has defeated his enemies. He hasn't destroyed them. He will destroy them at his second coming in the lake of fire. Sin, death, hell, the grave, and Satan. But in the meantime, he has defeated them and has circumscribed them according to his purposes. And he has, remember Matthew? He sends out the 70 to do what? Evangelize. Two by two. And when they get back, do you remember what they said? They said, even the demons were subject to us. And you remember what Jesus said? I saw Satan fall like lightning. Preach the gospel to all the nations. His previous position allowed by a sovereign God to blind not just individuals but whole nations has now been stopped so that we can go and proclaim the gospel to all the nations. It will cost us. But what Satan can't do is stop us if we're willing to die for Jesus. He has been... Here's what, here, Let me give you another quote from the Gospels. I saw Satan not only fall like lightning, but now then he says, the strong man. That's what they called all the mafia bosses. <laughs> the strong man. The strong man has been bound. Go and plunder his house. Bring the elect from every tribe and nation. And now you get the vision of that in the apocalyptic picturesque language. Look at verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand, what? A key. A key to the abyss, the bottomless pit. Now that's not Gehenna. That's the prison room for Satan. That's the prison room. That there is the key to the bottomless pit. And not only does he have a key, which means he must have a lock, he's got a great chain. That he is going to be chained. Now, may I use the picturesque language? Um, I confess to you, when I was five years old, I developed a great fear of dogs that I had to overcome just by going face to face with one when I was 12. But from five to 12, I had a big fear of dogs because I was eaten up by one almost when I was five. And I did not like them. But I remember when I was 10 and I used to have to walk home from school five miles in the snow uphill both ways. And as I was going home, I had to pass this house that had a um, a pit, uh, what do you call him? Pit something. Uh, pit bull. That's what it was. It was a pit bull. And, uh, but 
thankfully, the owner had this gigantic stain tra- uh, chain and a stake in the ground. And I found out the chain worked and the stake worked. And boy, did I get brave when I started walking by that house after I tested the chain a couple of times. And that's what Jesus is telling you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And he that is in the world, I have already dealt with him. Don't fear him. Don't flee him. Resist him. He will flee from you. I've got him on a chain. He can't do what I do not allow him to do. And I don't allow him to do anything that is not ultimately for my glory and your good as difficult as it might be. And that's what you know and that's how you are to live. And so he gives this picture and then he doesn't stop there. He says that this, to make sure you know who he's talking about, he, he sees the dragon. So you can see this angel seizing the dragon. They say, here, but I mean, the dragon, Satan, he see an angel got him? Yeah, remember, what is Satan? He's a fallen angel. Now defeated by Christ at the cross. He's a pretender. He's a usurper. And in case you don't know who he's talking about, that ancient serpent. Does that give you the language of, of the garden of, um, of the garden where he came disguised as a serpent? And in case you still don't know, who is the devil? And in case you still don't know, Satan, the adversary. So he gives you four identifying marks of who he's talking about. And he bound him for a thousand years. And now we have denominations flowing out of the woodwork. What is that thousand years? Well, folks, I was raised premillennial. Where you had a second coming of Christ. And then he he had a thousand years. And then you had another second coming of Christ. And if you see Revelation 12 through 19 and then 20 through 22 as consecutive and not repetitive, then uh, I think I understand why people become premillennialists. But as I read the Bible, I just can't find two second comings. One at the beginning of a thousand years and another one at the end. And in terms of dispensational premillennialism, I can't find two and a half second comings. A half second coming, the rapture out the church, then a second coming seven years later, and then another one a thousand years. When I read the Bible, I only find one. That's it. I find one. And what I do find is the careful description of the church of Jesus Christ, his new covenant people, from his ascension having defeated Satan... Until he comes again in judgment, that is a perfect span of time to gather all of the elect from all of the nations. And how do you do that? Like every other number in the book of Genesis, it has a symbolic meaning. It's ten to the third power. Ten times ten times ten. One thousand. That's the term of fullness. That's not the literal years. It is the fulfillment description of the years from the ascension of Jesus to his second coming. In that period of time, Satan will be restricted, will be bound. 
How will he be bound? Let's go on to look a little bit more. He will be bound and is thrown into the pit and shut and sealed it over him. Not He can't do anything, but he can't do one thing. He can no longer deceive the nations. He cannot deceive the nations any longer until the elect have been brought through evangelism and discipleship. Until the Great Commission has been fulfilled. Until all of his people from all of the nations, or another way to say it, until the complete number thousand years has been fulfilled the 10 complete times 10 complete times 10 complete that's the period between the two comings of Christ and Satan can't stop it but then before Christ comes notice after that he will be released now look for a little while now he then renews his study, and we go back to a second vision in light of the victorious ascended Christ. But this second vision is not looking at the implication of Christ's victory on the earth with Satan, with Satan, um, uh, with Satan bound in a chain and sealed and kept from deceiving the nations, so that we are now free to go and make disciples of all the nations under the sovereign hand of God. Now he shifts to a vision in the heavens. What does it look like in the heavens right now? Here's where he gives it. Then I saw thrones, the throne room of God. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw what? So what are we looking at? Come on, you can help me. We're looking at the immediate heaven, not the ultimate heaven. Not the ultimate new heaven and new earth. Why? There's no bodies there. There are souls that we're told have a temporary covering in Revelation 6, the white linen. And so there are the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And now he looks at not only the martyrs, but now he looks at the rank and file of the Christians who have been converted and died. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. Again, with all due respect, I don't think it's a chip. I don't think it's a tattoo. I, I think the mark on the foreheads is a reflection. The elect of God are said to be sealed with a mark on their forehead. It is the renewed mind in the word of God. And what is the mark of those who serve the beast instead of Christ? It is the debased mind, the futile mind that ends up displayed in life on the hand of life as well. Now, so these are the, so these are believers described in this negative term that they don't have the mark of the debased mind. They don't have the mark of the beast, the debased mind, and they don't have it on their foreheads, their minds, nor on their hands, the way they live their life. They, now what about them? They came to life 
and reign with Christ for a thousand years. They are right now reigning with Christ. These departed souls are with Christ and are joint heirs with him and ruling and reigning with him in this this immediate heaven where we find them. The rest of the dead, who would that be? Unbelievers. The rest of the dead, the unbelievers, those with the mark of debased thinking and emptiness of idolatry, those, what about them? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. They continue in death in the abyss. They have not a perfected soul, but a debased soul. And thus they are not in life. In the immediate Hades. This is the first resurrection. Those who have come to Christ and gone to be with him. Are participants in the first resurrection. And they are ruling and reigning with Christ. You see you know you're in the heavens. There are no thrones on the earth. The throne is in the heaven. The souls are not on the earth. The souls are in the heaven. This vision has taken us to heaven. And now before Christ comes during this thousand years as the church on the earth is getting its job done by the power of the Holy Spirit and the sovereign hand of God that has bound the strong man. Now we go plunder his house at the same time those who die during this time are with the Lord are perfected are ruling and reigning with the Lord are joined with the Lord and have experienced the first resurrection that is absent from the body present with the Lord. And there they are in the presence of the Lord with him. Those who are not believers, not so. They continue under the debasement of their mind and the depravity of their life. Then he says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Those who die in the Lord in the first resurrection have no fear of the second death as Christ has been with them in the first death and brought them into his presence with the first resurrection. They will be priests of God and of Christ. And they, during this period of time, will reign with him for this thousand years. That's the picture that's given you in the two areas. Now, Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. When all of those people, God's people, through the gospel movement of the Great Commission to all the nation, reaches its zenith, then Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Now the reference back to Ezekiel, Gog and Magog. And the context of Ezekiel, it's speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucid, Seleucid Empire. That Magog is the place, Gog is the ruler. That, that, that picture of that from the Old Testament becomes the picture 
of the beast that's ruling, that is tyrannical government, that is ruling throughout the nations. And then they will be gathered them for their battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what he says is, at the end of time, as the elect have been gathered, then Satan will be loosed for a while. And now he's back in business. Not isolated persecution of individual movements upon Christians, but now a concerted effort of all the nations of the world that will come together in order to exterminate. Do you remember last week? Because Satan was not able to devour the child, he now spends his time trying to devour the woman. And now, seemingly, he will have the sovereign hand of God that allows him as the chain and the lock and the seal are removed that kept him from deceiving the nations. Now he deceives the nations. Again, this isn't isolated as it has from time to time in history. This is a concerted surrounding Of the camp. Notice the two phrases for God's people. The camp and the people of God. The church. That he would surround it and seemingly will win the victory. But then. He will be slain. As the hand of God comes. Do you all remember my reading last week in 2 Thessalonians? 2 Thessalonians says this. Satan's activity will deceive. And seemingly he will win the victory. And then the Lord will slay him. With the breath of his coming. I don't mean to trivialize this, but this is better than any Calvary trumpeted charge of John Wayne that ever could be existed, could be considered. At that moment, when we seemingly have fulfilled the great commission, the culture of the great commandment in the church at work, Satan is loosed, but we're told for just a little while where he then summons the nations of the earth and the picture is given of the biggest apocalyptic battlefield in history. Napoleon fought there. The Moors fought there. The Crusaders fought there. Uh, World War I was fought there. Throughout all of history, It was there, of course, that Deborah fought. It is there that Ezekiel fought. 
I mean, Elijah fought. The plains of Armageddon become the picture of that battlefield. Pastor, do you think it's going to be a physical battle? May or may not be. But I do know, seemingly, it will look like Satan through this beast of the land, supported by the sea, beast of the sea, will have surrounded the camp of the army of the Lord, as if with a multitude that cannot be numbered, as if it will overcome. But then, the battle is the Lord's. And he shall slay them with the breath of his coming. As he comes with a flaming sword. His sword now is a double-edged, convicting and consoling, bringing us to salvation. And that day, his sword will send all of his enemies to the judgment seat and the lake of fire as he delivers his people. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time that we could be together. Uh, Father, this anticipation of the amassing of the nations from the four corners. What amazing picturesque language John is using. This season, small, little season, where Satan seemingly is going to yet win a victory. Lord, these things are not, these have occurred. How many times have we seen in the Old Testament? It looks like the evil empire doesn't just strike back. It looks like it's going to win. But then the Lord intervenes. And can we see a more glorious time than in the first advent of Christ? We can almost hear the fiendish laughter from the the fiendish demonic laughter, satanic mocking of God's kingdom and of our Christ at the cross. Yet, it was there He won the victory. And that the last, and that the coming of Christ in these last days, Satan again will seem like he has the victory. But the people of God willingly will die for their Savior and stand their ground in order to take captive every thought unto the obedience of Christ. And the Lord will deliver us in his coming. Lord, we experience that every day. How many times have we been in the courts of men, both formal and informal, and you give us what to say and how to say it? How many times have you delivered us from the evil one whom you have bound? And how gloriously you will deliver us on that day. So Jesus... We pray, as Satan would do his worst, you will not only have the victory, you not only have the victory, but you will manifest the victory. And at that moment, slay the evil one 
And then, oh God, bring us to glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.